episode 414 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're expressing here today do not necessarily reflect of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, and maybe not even ours in three weeks. Joining me for this news roundup, David Chris, the founder of Culper Partners and former assist- Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Gus Hermwitz, who's a professor of law at the University of Nebraska. Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder of the National Security Institute and a hundred other things. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and hopefully the chief provocateur for today's program. I thought it would be useful. We are now practically in July. There's not much time left before everybody has to leave Capitol Hill to campaign for re-election. And so getting time on the floor for votes is a precious and limited resource. And there's a whole bunch of bills um, trying to make it to the floor and get voted on in the hopes that one or more bipartisan bills will pass. It's like 12 fat men trying to get through a narrow uh, doorway. Most of them are not going to make it. Maybe none of them will make it. But I thought we'd talk about a few of the tech bills that people have been saying, oh, yeah, that looks good. It could happen. And now we're starting to see them picked off. So let's start, Gus, with private. There was a lot of enthusiasm when mostly the Dems on the House side stepped back from some of their demands on preemption and agreed to a compromise bill that looked pretty good to people who had had objections to some of the earlier bills and looked particularly good to industry. They now have bipartisan support in the House and the ranking member of the committee on the Senate side Senator Maria Cantwell was the holdout. She's the chairman of the committee, and it looks to me, Gus, like she just put the last stake in its heart. Yeah, it's a remarkable story where this bill came from, or more how quickly this bill, which is the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, or since we love our acronyms, ADPPA. Anytime you see the PPA, you know that it's some sort of privacy protection act, it seems, uh, nowadays. But yeah, just a month or so ago, this bill suddenly materialized with bipartisan support, and it looked like it almost was going to happen. There was a slight hiccup along the way before just this past week when a group of senators tried to attach or suggested attaching the email providers can't discriminate against Republicans bill to it. We might come back to that one as well. But it looked like the stars were lining up until, as you said, Senator Cantwell recanted, or I guess she might not have spoken up to it and said it's not going to happen. And that was on Friday that she said it. And over the weekend, a spokeswoman for her actually made it even clearer how dead it is, saying that post-Dobbs, which of course everyone knows was decided this past week, no privacy bill has any chance of getting through the office unless it protects patient privacy, which isn't part of this bill. So you had something that was dead as a doornail and we just hit it with a hammer. Yep. So one less fat man to get through the doorway. Let's talk about the bill that also had enormous support to essentially subsidize chip factories in the United States and give a bunch of money, or at least to authorize a bunch of money for the National Science Foundation for various things that people thought would improve our national technology competitiveness. That bill is still around. It's something that industry, especially the chip industry, really wants and has been kind of counting on. Jamil, how's it look? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think the challenge right now with what's known as USICA or the America Competes Act, this would actually appropriate the funding that was authorized in part for the CHIPS Act in the National Defense Authorization Act, about $52 billion to help support the reshoring, the onshoring of American chip manufacturing here in the United States, research and development and the like. The bill it passed the Senate easily last summer, and now we're trying to get it through the House. Well, two competing versions, I should say. The House passed a bill of its own, America Competes. The Senate passed USICA. They're now in theory in conference, uh, trying to find a middle ground. There have been a variety of things that that have caused challenges, uh, including provisions that are not related directly to the semiconductors and the like. 
But of course, Americans, Stuart, recognize the real challenge that we face in this space. We've seen the challenges in auto manufacturing, 8.2 million fewer vehicles last year than would have happened without the chip shortage, according to at least one consulting firm, $200 billion in revenue for car companies alone, just because of the chip shortage. And this isn't a small problem, right? I mean, this is a situation where the vast majority of the computer chips we use in the United States, particularly high-end CPUs and GPUs are put together and packaged, even though they may be developed the IP here in the U.S. They're put together and packaged these, particularly in Taiwan, South Korea, increasingly in China, and places where the Chinese have potential influence. So if they choose to shut off our access chips, they could easily do so. But something we learned about in the context of the pandemic and the shortages we faced when it came to medical supplies and pharmaceutical precursors. So it's a very real problem and one that we need to get together as a nation. By the way, it's not like we're going to solve it overnight if Congress passes this legislation. It takes years and years to build these factories, particularly the higher-end ones that do the most competitive and sort of smallest number of transistors on a chip. So we need to get ahead of this, and Congress needs to take action rapidly here in the near future if we're going to get so ahead of this we problem. Haven't? How come we haven't? You know, there, Stuart, there's a lot of additional provisions that in particular the House put into this legislation that relate to, you know, things that are outside of semiconductors in particular. There's a lot of sort of green energy issues and the like that have been caught up in this. And these are problems that can't be solved. They can be solved. But the House Senate negotiators haven't seemed to find a middle ground. To be candid, there's a lot of debate within the House itself. Republicans in the House in particular are concerned about overspending. They want to see some guardrails around this money. They want to ensure the money is spent here in the U.S. and it's not simply an offset to spending overseas. So there are legitimate concerns here that need to be resolved. But the problem is they're not able to find a middle ground and they're not doing it in a way that recognizes this is a problem that can't keep it being put off, right? And so, look, the leadership could find a middle ground. They've just got to commit themselves to doing so and getting a bill through the House and the Senate to the president's desk. Before they leave for August recess, frankly, I think Congress should not adjourn for the August recess until they get this bill done. Yeah, so it, it does look as though the House Democratic leadership thought they had a lot more leverage than they now have as they look at the likely results of the next election. So they are ready to make some compromises. One of the things that is holding this up is Senator Cornyn who couldn't get his amendment into the Senate bill is working pretty hard to try to get it into the House bill. This is something that would focus on trying to get people to get approval from the U.S. government yes. before they invest overseas in certain kinds of technology. And right. I think this is aimed pretty directly at some of the chip companies that if they're going to build chip design and manufacturing capability in other countries, especially adversary countries, the U.S. government wants a say in that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Stuart, this is an important issue, right? This is about out, outbound investment, investment from the United States being invested overseas, particularly in places like China and other places that might be under the Chinese influence, Taiwan potentially, and the like. And the concern is, you know, a few years ago, we passed a change to the American Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. These are when foreigners invest here. If they're sensitive national security technologies, how do we protect those from foreign influence? The flip side, Americans investing our capital overseas in places that might be influenced by foreign governments is a real concern. And one that Senator Cornyn, I think, rightly is focused on. The question is, how do you do that without crushing opportunities for Americans to invest overseas and do so in a way that's effective? And I think that's the debate. I think Senator Cornyn is likely to get a version of his legislation into the ultimate bill. I think that he's made a point that it's important and relevant to the China competition. And he's yep. right. It is. The question is... How much can you get done in a short period of time while trying to get this larger bill done? I think both are related. And I think Senator Cornyn rightly recognizes this may be the only opportunity of the moving vehicle to get his bill done in this Congress. Look, it may get easier next Congress with the Republican majority in the House, potentially in the Senate. But it's hard to know. We just don't know what's going to happen in the elections. Yeah, I, I think he's learned the lesson that anything he does in this area about investment into or from China is going to get opposed by the business community. And so he's picked a bill where he says, look, we're writing you a $52 billion check. Yeah. I think you can actually take a few regulatory restrictions in national security. So we'll see. He, he may or may not get it, but that will be part of the question whether this bill actually gets through. Yeah, and it's worth noting, by the way, Stuart, that 100 CEOs wrote to Congress just last week, arguing in favor of the bill being passed in some form or another, including, you know, the CEO of Alphabet, Google's parent company, Amazon. I mean, these are a lot of companies that don't necessarily always get along. And a huge number of them saying this bill is critical to American competitiveness in the modern era. I've never seen actually a 
letter with this many CEOs at this level on it. So worth noting, I think, for Congress, I think they will sit up and pay attention to, you know, Michael Dell, the chairman CEO of Dell, I mean, Global Foundries, I mean, you name it. It's not just chip companies that really want this bill to go through Honda Motors, Lyft Incorporated, the CEO of IBM. I mean, this is a big deal. And so I think even as Senator Cornyn pushes forward, there's gonna be a lot of pressure on Congress to get something done here in this space, particularly as we face challenges you know, when it comes to our economy right you, now. You want to throw okay. out any more CEO names before Stuart moves us along, Jamil? <laughs> I'm good. I've got, I've got, I was honestly just trying to like go through and see like, who, what are the big names on that list? I'm just trying to throw some names out there. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, we'll just call this a fat man on a diet, hoping to get through. Gus, there are a couple of antitrust bills that are really big deals. Maybe the biggest threat from the point of view of the Silicon Valley nobility and uh, Klobuchar's um, IOCA, uh, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act, basically says you really big platforms, you can't self-preference. And there's a whole bunch of footnotes to that, but that's the basic idea. They are pulling out all the stops, partly because this is bipartisan legislation. And so the things that the Republicans like, the Democrats are tolerating and vice versa, and they're hoping to make one or the other say, I can't tolerate that. Yeah, so this bill first, I think we are very near the point of saying it's dead. Might still come back and the story of this bill in many ways is that Senator Klobuchar has snatched it from the jaws of defeat several times and managed to keep it going and it's looked like it was about to happen several times. But the simple reality of this bill and why I've been surprised that it's had any chance of actually happening is why the Republicans who do support it, support it. And the reason that the Republicans who do support it support it, they've been perfectly clear and transparent about this, is that they think it places limits or can be used to place limits on the big platform's content moderation practices. And the Democratic supporters have been hand-waving the entire time saying, oh, no, no, it doesn't. It won't undermine content moderation. You can just ignore what the Republicans are saying. And what's happened over the last couple of weeks, a month or so, is a bunch of folks, including a group of four Democratic senators, have come out saying, no, we're really concerned. We can see how this bill could be read as empowering or limiting firms' content moderation practices as self-preferencing or anti-competitive. And at minimum, under the bill's language, it's enough to get into court and get through a, a summary judge, a motion to dismiss and get to discovery, at which point that's the whole game. So Senator Klobuchar, please insert some language. Here's some draft language that will make clear that this bill can't have that effect. And of course, the Republicans who support it are saying, no way, you can't remove that. So really, uh, the man behind the curtain has been revealed and now knows that there's an untenable compromise here. We had a curious, so there, there's a story of the Baptists and bootleggers where you get two divergent interests that come together to support things for completely oppositional values, but they're supporting the same thing. Well, in this case, that's not the story. The actual story is we had two groups who agreed to support this one thing because they had divergent understandings of what it would do. And now we're realizing that those divergent interests are the salient motivations for the two sides to support the bill. And I don't think that there is a core compromise that can be had that will let Senator Klobuchar get to the 60 she needs. So you think enough Dems will bail over this to kill it? She needs to get 10 Republicans plus however many Dems she loses. And that's a lot of Republicans. Uh, that's a lot. And what about national security? Jamil, there was a flap over national security. The argument was if you forbid self-preferencing, the principal beneficiaries will be the big social media companies from China who are not regulated by this and who can then bring antitrust suits against American champions. Added a defense for national security that was kind of moderately effective and moderately controversial. Did you think it was sufficient? 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think that there's been a lot of national security concerns raised with this uh, bill, and I'm happy to walk through some of them. But the short answer to your question is no. The changes made by Senator Klobuchar were not sufficient. And affirmative defense, you know, in this space is practically nothing, right? No CEO, no general counsel is going to want to risk a huge amount of percentage of global turnover that's at risk here with the basis of some affirmative defense. Look, th- this bill raises concerns on the cybersecurity front. It raises concerns with the ability of foreign companies to engage and engage in behavior that's not that they're not subject to regulation under the bill. There are a variety of problems. In addition, by the way, you know, the bill has all sorts of provisions that are vague and hard to understand that the, that the sponsors say, well, they'll be sorted out with regulation, right? Well, that's cold comfort to companies that need to make decisions about where to invest, how to spend their money, and how to take action. And the reality is, is that these companies are our biggest players when it comes to competing with China, whether it's on AI or you know, AIML or Quantum or the like. And in these critical areas where we are competing actively with China, the idea that we would take out our best, most scalable players in order to cut them down to size for political purposes. I mean, Gus is exactly right, right? Republicans are mad at big tech because they're mad about content moderation and about what they see as suppression conservative voices. These are legitimate concerns on the conservative side. Liberals are concerned with big tech because they're mad about labor and the way that modern labor is treated in the gig economy. And those are legitimate concerns. This bill has nothing to do with any of those things. This bill takes the antitrust approach, selects a handful of companies that go after them in very aggressive ways with huge threats. And these minor sort of changes that might make adjustments to the margin don't address the core problems of the bill, which is it takes out our best players in the heart of a major competition with China. This bill is silly. It would be catastrophically bad for our national security. And by the way, you don't have to believe me. You have to look at the dozens of Republicans and Democrat political appointees and career intelligence leadership who have signed letters time after time. There are three letters out there now that are saying that say this, right? So if you don't believe me, right, believe Robert O'Brien, believe, you know, Sue Gordon, believe Michael Morell, Leon Panetta. I mean, you name it, Republicans, Democrats alike, Trump administration, Biden administration, Obama administration folks all of whom say this is a nightmare for national security. This bill is not ready for prime time. It won't be ready anytime soon. Passing it now would be catastrophically bad for our national security. Okay, so all the fat men that we tried to get through that door, the only one that sounded like it might have a shot was the CHIPS Act. Not surprisingly, it's $52 billion in free money for for industry. They're supportive, and nobody is profoundly opposed. So maybe we'll get there. Now, Stuart, uh, we should also put on the table here, and Jamil, possibly bad news for you. If ICOA does go down in the legislature, we need to have our eyes on the FTC, which has been discussing using its rulemaking authority here. They have started to announce some aggressive privacy and security related rules, not antitrust focused, but the talk of the FTC town over the last six to 12 months has been, will Lena Khan use antitrust rulemaking to do things like ICOA? And if ICOA goes down, then that I think is much more likely a path for us to see, in which case, Jamil, I don't know how much the FTC even cares about or knows or thinks about national security concerns in the same way that Congress does. Well, uh, no, Gus is, yeah, Gus is exactly right, Stuart, on this front. And look, it is a weird situation when you have, you know, strange bedfellows like Lena Khan at the FTC, right? Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham in the Senate, right? Amy Klobuchar. I mean, these are people that don't, you know, Ken Buck in the House. I mean, you know, David Cicilline. I mean, this bill brings together a very weird combination of political interests because this bill is not about antitrust. This bill is not about competition. This bill is about political beefs that people have with big tech. But by the way, are legit. I'm not a, I've railed against Apple at times when they've, when they've done things that are bad for national security. I've litigated antitrust actions against Microsoft myself, right? I mean, like, I get it, right? But this is not the way to do it. We have antitrust laws that work. FTC rulemaking in this space would, I think, be, would be subject to all sorts of challenges in court. Challenges, I think, would be largely successful. So let Lena Khan do it in a regulatory way. Let's bring the challenges. And by the way, Chevron, maybe time to say bye-bye. It may not be in this context, <laughs> But it's going to happen, and everyone should be ready for that. It's all at risk. I agree. Are we now in the window where any new regulation will be subject to a challenge in the new Congress and potential nuking? It's an elaborate mechanism for counting the days, and my bet is we're getting pretty close to where a new Congress could nuke the rule and really assault the ground under it. You mean through the Congressional Review Act? Yeah. 
Yeah, certainly. Although, you know, the more likely place for this to happen, I think, would be in the courts with the companies bringing suit against these regulations and challenging them on the basis. Now, the problem is, as you all well know, the Clayton and the Sherman Antitrust Acts have a lot of room. They're almost designed to be, you know, filled in the gaps. And the question becomes, the court has largely endorsed that gap filling. The question is what happens. The, the Chevron thing, I think, is less relevant here than it is other places where the statutes are much more clear. And perhaps there could be de- delegation issues. Well, and, okay. until we hear what happens in West Virginia of the EPA and possible major questions that could get resolved there. I'm <laughs> guessing that's not, not, that's going to be another conservative decision, but I could be wrong. And yeah, that, it, 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 a series of outrages, in fact, maybe it even happened already. I just haven't checked my Supreme Court docket for today. No, not today. Uh, all right. Okay, let's go to the courts. David, the First Circuit has been struggling with this question. There's only six of them, and they managed to split 3-3 over how to treat telephone pole cameras. And I read this as a really big expansion. It's like the court and carpenter said, yeah, we don't know where we're going here, but this is just too creepy. So we're going to say this requires judicial supervision. And now the courts are saying, oh yeah, we can do that to any technology now that carpenter has been decided. <laughs> this is going to be a agoraphobic experience for the courts. Yeah, so it is interesting. And I do think the main level of interest or line of interest here is in how Carpenter's playing out in the lower courts. And for those not familiar with the Supreme Court's prior decision in Carpenter, that's where the court held that if the government tries to obtain seven or more days of cell site location information on your phone and where it's been from the mobile telephone provider that you have, then you've got to get a warrant based on probable cause in most cases. So this is a limit on so-called third-party doctrine in which you generally don't have rights in data that you voluntarily convey to a third party, like the numbers you dial or that call you on your phone. Persistent location data, the court said in Carpenter, is different than that. And I think it's safe to say that the Academy has been all aflutter since then, trying to figure out what it means and then the lower courts trying to figure out what it means. Some professors say Carpenter is the beginning of a major revolution in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. Some say it's just a one-off with you know very limited implications, and then some of them try to keep a foot in both camps, usually saying multiple different things in order to maintain or obtain tenure as needed. The, the smartest guy in the first camp, I think, for example, is Paul Ohm of Georgetown, who's written a long article saying this is a big moment. I, I got to say, I think like you, Stuart, the, the decision about the poll cameras maybe doesn't help move the needle or resolve the issue because they did split three to three and they spent 129 pages doing it. So, you know, a model of clarity, I don't think we have yet, but uh, I look through the opinion so you don't have to. Um, so three judges uh, writing here was David Barron um, said uh, persistent use of video camera mounted on a telephone pole and pointed at the outside of the defendant's home for eight months was a Fourth Amendment search under Carpenter. And I mean, I think it's interesting to note right off the bat, you know, this is not a third party case, really. Yes, they had to get the uh, camera up on the pole, but this is self-help, uh, direct collection by the government. And the uh, and the, those three judges said, well, that doesn't matter because it's really the nature of the data and not so much the role of a third party that really matters. Yeah, because basically and, Carpenter stands for the proposition that if we think it's creepy, then it's got to be unconstitutional. <laughs> yes. And the other three judges, this is uh, Gerald Lynch writing for them, and he's also uh, no lightweight, said, come on, a poll camera. First of all, the court in Carpenter specifically says security cameras are old fashioned technology not affected here. And plus, a poll camera is just like a super no- nosy neighbor or neighbors, you know, rear window type scenarios. And so you should just imagine that, uh, you know, your next door neighbor might be looking out the window at any given moment, watching who's coming and going from your house, maybe even taking notes, keeping a log and providing that to the police. So no Fourth Amendment search. Who's right? Who knows? You know, obviously, Stuart, you've got a strong view on this as on everything. What I would say is stay tuned. But if you wanted clarity and you thought the lower courts would just work this out and we'd get a real sense of where the lines are after Carpenter, I don't think you should hold your breath. What I found interesting is that I did not see in the opinions a reference to the Amazon doorbell. You know, the notion (laughs) that that nobody's going to sit across the street and watch everything that happens on your curtilage and keep notes of it. It's just wrong. Your doorbell camera across the street is going to 
going to record that. This whole discussion, it's just, it's sad to see people who are kind of out of touch with the technology saying, well, this sounds creepy. I don't know. This basically puts all kinds of technology at risk. Can a cop hold a camera up while he's walking by? Can he take pictures, still pictures? If you have a camera that is just an anti-crime camera, can you, you put that up? It's not aimed at anybody, but this is a high crime area. We want to be able to catch crooks. Who knows? Do you need a, what kind of warrant would you get for that? This is just, it's nuts. You're taking us towards a UK surveillance state, Stuart. I, look, I, if, if that's where we end up, these cameras are so cheap and so easy to hook up that we're going we're gonna to end up in this world. And this is a kind of last-ditch rearguard resistance on the part of the courts that is just going to screw up the law. Well, and, and, well, and we'll Stuart, it's worth noting yeah, it's worth noting they have screwed the law already. I mean, the idea somehow that cell phones are special and different because they hold so much data, right? This idea that, you know, that our location, because it can be monitored at large scale and granularly, that somehow that creates different rules for the Fourth Amendment under the third party doctrine, right? There's no there's no actual reality to the legal questions there. It's simply just a felt need by the court to think that, oh, well, you know, the Internet's special and different. Cell phones are special and different now today than they were before, right? And this is what happens when you have nine old people, right, making decisions about what the Constitution means in the context of modern technology. It's an institution not well designed for this. And frankly, you know— Carpenter could have been a lot worse had Justice Sotomayor figured out how to count to five with Justice Gorsuch, who appears to be headed in her direction, yep. Yep. even though right. his opinion styled as whatever it was a dissent or the like, right? There's a burgeoning majority of older people who think they can figure this technology out and getting the law, frankly, wrong in a way that's bad for our national security and the security and safety of Americans. And that's going to be a disaster because once he decides a constitutional matter, you know, it's hard to unwind these things as we've seen, okay. you know, just in recent weeks and days. All right. Forget so Carpenter, the headline ahead, coming out of this is Jamil Jaffer comes out in favor of mandatory retirement age for Supreme Court justices. Outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to me, the, you know, some of the youngest justices, unfortunately, on the court are the ones headed in the wrong direction in this space. I hate to say it, but uh, from my perspective, it's unfortunate. All right. So I'm willing to bet that none of the Supreme Court justices have ever appeared on TikTok willingly, let alone WeChat. Jamil, there was a great detailed study by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, which is probably the best, most moderate in tone and penetrating in analysis discussion of Chinese efforts to influence Western governments because, you know, Australia is on the front line of that. And they had a really good article or study, probably 50 pages on TikTok and WeChat content moderation and privacy. What would you say the takeaways were? I mean, look, I think the takeaway writ large, 72 pages at full length, you know, is not shocking. It's what we all know and knew for a long time, which is that WeChat and TikTok are significantly influenced by the Chinese government and that they implement Chinese government content moderation policies. And you look at an app like WeChat with 1.2 billion monthly active users worldwide, including 100 million outside of China. TikTok with a global audience of over nearly 700 million as of two years ago, right? We know that they're engaged in these censorship activities. The report details the range of hashtags, for example, on TikTok that are banned, including the hashtag in Russian for Putin is a thief. The hashtag for gay in Russian, Arabic, I'm a lesbian in Russian and Estonian and Bosnian. I mean, so transgender in Arabic. So, you know, it's not just Chinese content moderations, content moderation that goes to social and huge issues for debate in these countries they operate in. But it is content moderation influenced by the Chinese government. And so it's a concern. Uh, as we know, content moderation in this country has been a concern for conservatives and liberals alike. Misinformation, disinformation on one hand you know, a speech on the other. And it's one that we know that these apps engage in actively, oftentimes at the behest of the Chinese government, and yet we do little about it. And so what the report suggests is that Western countries implement laws that prohibit this type of banning of certain types of hashtags and the like. And to the extent that companies aren't willing to comply with it, that they essentially deplatform them in their country, that's Strong medicine, obviously, but it's something that we talked about in the context of TikTok under the Trump administration, and that raises continuing and ongoing issues. So this suggests that Diffius, which has been focusing on 
where the data is stored and how much access to the data the Chinese engineers have and in, in their review of TikTok, and which has basically given WeChat a free pass, uh, might be missing the boat. They're just not focused on content moderation. You know, I actually think it's the other way around, Stuart. I think that this particular report talks a lot about content moderation and influence through shaping of content online, which is clearly an issue for us and the Chinese in terms of WeChat and TikTok and their efforts to do it and our efforts to oppose it. But I actually think that one of the largest issues and where the Trump administration had the issue with TikTok, right, is that it's less to me about content moderation, less about, you know, videos of kids dancing and more about the massive amount of data that China and other adversarial nations, but particular China, is able to obtain from apps like WeChat and TikTok about how Western users behave and their ability to take that data, pour it into their machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms and train them. You know, as we all know, people have always said, oh, data is the new oil, yada, yada, yada. In the context of training algorithms and making the algorithms capable in an AI machine learning enabled world, Data really is, in a lot of ways, the lifeblood of that training data and the ability to take huge amounts of Western data in the form of TikTok communications, who you communicate with, your circle of friends, the people you talk to. And within China, WeChat, the potential useless data to train their algorithms is dramatic. And when it combined, by the way, with the data that the Chinese are stealing from Americans, whether it's healthcare data or credit card data or the entirety of our national security vetting database, which was a few years back. I mean, when you combine that data with this WeChat and TikTok data and the like, it's hugely problematic from a implementing intelligence operations, including humans operations for decades going forward. Yeah, I'm not sure that TikTok is gathering data that is going to be essential to that, but I, I'm willing to accept a friendly amendment that said that CPS has partially missed the boat by not inquiring into some of these content moderation practices, especially at WeChat, where they have been very aggressive with Chinese-speaking Americans. Yeah, I mean, I won't disagree with you that certainly, you know, somebody should be looking at this, whether it's CFIUS or not. I take your point. My view, though, is I actually don't agree with you on TikTok. I actually think the TikTok data, because of its scale, is actually extremely valuable when put in the context of all the other data the Chinese have already gathered. You combine, well, standing alone, TikTok data might not be that interesting, but when combined with the other data the Chinese already have, the ability to use that in training context is, I think, hugely, hugely valuable and growing by the day because more and more young people here in the United States are getting on TikTok, sharing with their friends, connecting with friends on TikTok. It may not be critical for today's generation of human operations, but the next generation thousand percent will be massively valuable and hugely problematic for our country and our allies. Okay. Well, it turns out the social credit scoring system that is being exported to the United States and embraced with enthusiasm by Silicon Valley. So for this week in Silicon Valley censorship, I just thought I'd point to two stories that kind of show how this notion that we just have to stamp out these damn conservatives wherever they are and however we do it has spread to Silicon Valley. One guy who's critic of trans ideology uh, and who recognized that if you actually contradicted trans ideology, you'd be accused of hate speech and deplatformed. So in order to collect revenue from people who support him, he just sells t-shirts that basically say, reality's last stand, that you have to kind of know what he's talking about to understand why the t-shirt is consistent with his message. He sells them on Etsy, which just deplatformed without giving a reason because they he said they didn't have a reason, and that probably makes sense. So the idea was simply, you're making money, and you have a loathsome view of the world, and we're going to kick you out. PayPal did the same to him. I'm not sure whether it's for the t-shirts or for the fact that elsewhere he's been a critic of trans ideology. But it shows we're not going to end with just policing people who say bad things. We're going to police people who have bad views and they're not going to be allowed to make money, at least if Silicon Valley has something to say about it. And then the second was a Brown University doctor who had a Twitter account and put on his Twitter account a link to a scientific article that said COVID-19 vaccine has an impact on sperm counts. It lowers sperm counts. Uh, and it wasn't a very big study, but it was a scientific study. It was published. And Twitter suspended his account for doing that, which I think shows us what's 
profoundly wrong with this idea that says the CDC is the beginning and the end of what you can say about the vaccines and the coronavirus. That's not how science works. People do studies. They publish studies. They criticize studies. They do studies, rebut the first study. And you need to be able to see studies that you don't agree with and evaluate them. Twitter's view is, no, if the CDC hasn't said it, you can't say it. And I think this is such a profound a dead end for science that we really need to give more publicity to just how bad Twitter's performance on advancing science has been. Stuart, I'd say the answer is if you want to engage in scientific and academic debate, you should go to a university where you can engage in these debates. But I'll just trail <laughs> off there. <laughs> yeah, maybe there is a university somewhere, but it's probably not in the United States. They're kind of sad. All right. Well, Gus, let's go back to the Federal Trade Commission. You said that Alina Khan is planning a whole bunch of stuff. Their most recent action, actually, I think was not a partisan issue. It was going after right to repair people who had infringed on the right to repair. I wasn't quite sure what the legal justification for attacking people who were limiting the right to repair was and how strong it was. So maybe you can unpack that. Yeah. So first, the people we're talking about is Harley-Davidson and a couple other companies, Westinghouse. But uh, FTC decided to pick a fight with Harley-Davidson. Some chutzpah there, I guess. The Yeah, but, but on behalf of a Harley-Davidson hog driver. Yeah, right. So, so <laughs> that, that might be, uh, we know where the power is there. So what's going on here? And then you're exactly right. The legal authority questions are the fascinating things. So Harley-Davidson, uh, Westinghouse, a couple other companies uh, had in their warranties a, a clause that basically said, if you have your stuff uh, repaired by an independent dealer, that voids the warranty. And the FTC said uh, that violates right to repair policies. I'll say more about that in just a moment. So you need to change your warranties. And the legal rubber meets the road here is the commission voted out an administrative complaint and the companies agreed to settle that with a consent decree. So there wasn't any litigation, administrative or otherwise here. The companies just said, this is cheaper than paying the lawyers. FTC, you get your way. Which is how the FTC makes almost all its rules. Yeah, exactly. And this traces back to, so first the right to repair discussion debate has been going on for uh, many years at this point. Last summer, the FTC issued a policy statement, which doesn't go through any process. It's not a legally enforceable rule or anything like that. But they issued a policy statement on right to repair stuff. And these complaints were premised on violations of that policy statement, which is a fascinating Thing because the policy statement to go back to the DC Circuit, FCC v. Comcast case 2007 or whatever, the Mayway's first net neutrality case where the DC Circuit said a policy statement isn't legally enforceable. You need to have process. Now in that case, it's in order to get Chevron deference. And as Jamil reminded us earlier, Chevron might no longer be a thing. But the long and short of it is the FTC kind of is doing a sidestep of the entire let's make binding legally enforceable norms thing here. And they can do that. They can get away with it so long as companies and parties aren't going to litigate it. The hard question or the hard issue will be when they try to pick a fight with a bigger bully than Harley-Davidson and they get pushback. Will they be able so to enforce I, it? My memory of Moss Magazine is it says there's a limited warranty and there's a full warranty. And if you want to have a full warranty, it has to have a bunch of stuff in it. And the result is that all the warranties we have are limited warranties. Is there more in the Moss Magnuson that would actually allow them to say, hey, no matter what kind of warranty you're offering, it has to include a right of repair and can't require that you use certain repair outlets? You know, looking back at the policy statement, I don't recall, and I'm going to get myself in trouble because I looked at it this morning and don't remember the details exactly, but I think it was more a, this is our policy without much reference to the actual law. 
So it's great when you can kind of fly below legal standards and judicial review by relying on consent decrees, so long as you're willing to have companies say, okay, fine, we'll do it, you're in the clear. And it's also worth highlighting here, the FTC has recently announced that their first rulemaking, this will be a MAGMOS rulemaking, it doesn't deal with this, but they're working on a rulemaking that will address uh, security practices, privacy abuses, and and algorithmic decision-making and unlawful discrimination. So they are certainly getting active in these areas. And also just to sprinkle a little more fairy dust into this whole mix, and this is part of the conundrum and the puzzle that is the FTC right now, there are arguments that right to repair limitations aren't warranty issues, they're antitrust and competition issues. So if the FTC were to want to deal with right to repair stuff, even in the warranty context, they might be able to argue this is an unfair method of competition in addition to or as an alternative to it being a unfair or deceptive trade practice. Well, look, I'm actually very sympathetic to restricting efforts to kill the right to repair. It's actually a complicated issue, but it's clearly seen a lot of abuses and sort of disappointed Republicans haven't jumped on this more enthusiastically. If you have to go out to Iowa and campaign for presidency, I would have thought telling the farmers that you're going to get rid of restrictions on the right to repair is a great way to pick up, you know, about 10 points in the polls. But it is hard to see how it's justified except as an antitrust. And maybe Klobuchar is missing a bet. She could get some more support if she added it to her bill. All right. Google and Microsoft have put out two reports about espionage campaigns, uh, intrusion software. David, the Google report I thought was interesting because it sounded like a really clever way to get your malware installed on people's phones. Yeah. So, you know, just for a change of pace, given all the positivity out there on cybersecurity, let's let's lead with a little bit of a depressing story. Um, Google says its threat advisory group says, look, there's an Italian spyware vendor. It's known as RCS that sells spyware that allows ISPs and governments, anybody who buys it to spy on iPhone and Android phone users. This had been found by another cybersecurity outfit uh, or a similar thing had been found. But to me, actually, the more interesting aspect of this is Google and the particulars of this exploit, I got to say, are technically beyond me. It's too bad Nick Weaver isn't with us today or something. But it's clever and it tricks you into downloading spyware and or granting permissions that enable the collection. So you end up you know, sharing your information, your content, whatever, with uh, an invisible third party whom you don't like. Um, I, I think the broader question here that, that I found fascinating about the Google report is that Google said, I think, seven out of nine zero days that it found last year were from commercial providers like RCS and that there were apparently, you know, 30 or more. We've heard of these vendors out there selling to governments. And, you know, we've all heard of some of the more famous ones, NSO and so forth. But I mean, I think the idea that some people may have as they look at this ecosystem, that it's, you know, somebody living in their mom's basement, hacking away in private, and then selling on some kind of open black market. It's maybe not quite right. This has really become corporatized and professionalized and systematized. And you've got these big vendors, and they're selling to governments and others. And that's a different kind of commercial ecosystem than than what we're familiar with. And it may take different kinds of responses to address. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, <laughs> as always in the realm of cybersecurity, the beatings will continue until morale improves. But it doesn't feel like a good news story. And it feels systematically like a potentially bad news story that may change our TTPs in response to these kinds of threats. So let me offer one thought about this, which is, as I read it, the Google report suggested that the way some of these worked was that the ISP would cut off your service, and then you'd get a message saying, to restore service, download this app. And the app would, of course, restore service and then take all of your data. And it occurred to me that to get the ISP to cooperate, all you need is a wiretap order on somebody. And then you get a a police assist in this wiretap order that goes to the ISP. The ISP says, now I've got a court order to cut off service and send them the service app. So this is a way of installing your app if you have like lawful authority, because I don't think the ISPs are going to do this for just about anybody. And that may be what 
is also interesting about this. Yes, it's big business, and it's big business because it's respectable. Yeah. These are things that are hallowed by law or were hallowed by law until Apple came along and uh, <laughs> changing the law. Well, if and to the extent that's what's going on, obviously it, it gives it a, a totally different frame and legitimacy. It also probably allows it to operate at a broader scale. There's lots of interesting questions in U.S. law and under various other foreign laws about whether and to what extent some kind of technical assistance or secondary order can actually be used to compel the installation of new software one way or the other. And there might be ways to simulate. Okay, Jamil, the Microsoft report about Russia's cyber espionage campaign. What's the takeaway? Look, I mean, I think that, you know, it tells us something that we already knew, but puts it in more concrete terms, right? It describes efforts by the Russians to target 42 countries with dozens of espionage campaigns. They focus on NATO allies and groups that support Ukraine. It also, I think, gives Microsoft a lot of credit for its own work defending <laughs> Ukraine. I- this is not surprising. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a Microsoft marketing document. But I do think they raise some interesting points, right? By the way, there is a lot of debate, I should note, within the tech community about whether some of the conclusions drawn in this report are accurate and whether, in fact, you know, the right folks at Microsoft were signed off on this thing. There's some debate going on within the Microsoft world about this report. But at the end of the day, it's an interesting story about what the Russians are doing. I think it tracks what we knew the Russians were doing, both on espionage, but also against Ukraine and how aggressive they've been. I think it highlights the fact that there has been a quite a bit of activity by the Russians and that there may be, and again, this is a debated issue with the technology community, right? There may be some connection between physical operations, cyber operations, and the, them bringing together in a new form of warfare. We've seen that already before. This is not new news about the Russians. It's not new news about the Russians in Ukraine, but it is concretized in some ways. And so I think an interesting and valuable report, if it does sort of toot Microsoft's own horn, um, and the importance of moving to the cloud and yeah, getting exactly. from yeah, the solution in, in the Microsoft cloud. Is right? get rid yeah. of your on-premises equipment and move That's to right. the cloud. Yeah, it's... Uh, right. And in particular, the Microsoft cloud, which, you know, it, I mean, the title of the report literally is Defending Ukraine, making the argument that Microsoft helped Ukraine's government move to the cloud and defend them better as a result. I will leave it to outside folks to judge whether that's accurate or true, but that certainly is the story being sold by Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft. Okay, let's see if we can do three or four quick hits in a minute each. Gus, there's a billboard in New York City that will empty your wallet. Yeah, so uh, quick, easy piece of advice. If you see a QR code and you don't trust its source, don't use it. And if you're an advertiser, maybe uh, be cautious about uh, using QR codes. Don't run them. Don't put them in the sky with airplanes. Don't put them on Super Bowl ads or anything like that. You don't know where they're going. And it's like having an email that automatically opens links when you send it. Only it's designed to automatically open the link. Yep. You don't know where that QR code has been. All right, Jamil, do we actually know now where all of Putin's money has been? So there's this report that's come out by a group of journalists who identified this organization called LLCinvest.ru. What they've determined is that dozens of Russian shell companies have a roll-up or have some relationship with this LLC.invest.ru organization, and that if you total up all their assets, it comes out to about $4.5 billion when you add up all Vladimir Putin's cronies and the like that control these things that might happen a common set of rules or or ownership or whatever it might be in this LLCinvest.ru organization. Again, I hate to be the person on the podcast this week who's discussing all the non-shocking information, but it's not shocking that the Chinese influence WeChat and TikTok. It's not shocking that American companies want more money from the federal government and that CEOs support it. And it's not shocking that Vladimir Putin has his fingers on billions of dollars of privatized, quote-unquote, government assets, including through his oligarchs. So nobody should be shocked. The fact that these journalists are identified- That's what we found it. Right? <laughs> That's right. Through a sort of website that has these links, I think is the more interesting point. It just goes to show, you know, in a world in which, you know, worlds were so connected that you can ferret out some of these things, I think is the really telling piece of this. So we've got a glimpse into some part of Vladimir Putin's empire. Frankly, I think it's bigger than what we see here, but an interesting way of connecting the dots. And, you know, follows on these Panama Papers and these other disclosures that we've seen that demonstrate something about how the global financial system works and who the real players are in it. Yep. Okay. And here's a story that I have a personal connection to, but it's also a story that's going to evolve over the next two or three years. Another privacy fight between the U.S. and some parts of the EU. The U.S. has 
always thought we ought to know whether criminals are applying to come to the United States, even from VWP, that is to say, countries that don't have visa requirements in the US. And in order to get into the visa waiver program now, countries have had to agree to share information about people who have criminal records and other uh, information about people that they know and we don't when they apply to come to the United States. Now that Europe is finally getting on board and collecting a lot of detailed biometrics to identify people and a lot of other information and sharing it in Europe, the European authorities have started to say, well, why should we share that with the United States unless they agree to uh, you know, a- adopt more European laws? And so we're going to see a fight over this, whether European countries who have done this on a bilateral basis, their agreements with the United States will be forced into a common front by the European Union. I'm guessing they hate that idea as much as we do, and so they'll fight that. And then the privacy people will say, why are we sharing information, biometrics and others with U.S. authorities? So watch for that. And we're likely to see yet another U.S.-European Union conflict over data over this issue. And then finally, David. Yeah. He wanted a quick hit. Yeah, don't bogart it. <laughs> right. So the new Intelligence Authorization Act, as approved by SSCI, says uh, that elements of the intelligence community can't deny security clearances based solely on past marijuana use. And this actually echoes some pre-existing guidance from the executive branch. We'll see if this version of the bill gets through the House and the Senate and becomes law, but it's part of a trend in recent years that includes, on the one hand, the IC being increasingly desperate for cyber talent, which is in very short supply. You just have to look at uh, Jen Easterly's Twitter account uh, for evidence of that. And then another trend, which is the increasing legalization of marijuana under state law. And it seems some significant use by some pretty talented cyber folks. I am not asserting a causal relationship or making any recommendations to the young folks out there. But it does appear to be the case that excluding dope smokers categorically would significantly limit the size of an already small a small cyber talent pool. And so this law is designed to deal with that. As I said, it echoes pretty much pre-existing executive branch guidance. We'll see. Uh, you know, it's always nice when two branches of government, I guess, weigh in on the same side of something uh, well, so maybe. you get greater clarity. <laughs> but, you know, I, here's my concern about this. It's, there's nobody left who makes it a disqualifying offense. So you kind of wonder why you would say you may not use it. There might be times when you might say marijuana use in combination with other things is part of your analysis for denying somebody a clearance. And I, I wonder. I think if that's still legal. permitted, though, Stuart. Okay. I, they're using the word solely here. So yeah. I think if you're a dope smoker and a murderer, uh, you know, that um, might get you uh, denial. But you're right. I mean, I do think there's a question whether the problem is it's a federal felony. I mean, you know, ah, yeah, and, okay, uh, right. so it's a little bit of a thing. I mean, maybe federal law will eventually mirror that of the states. I mean, that's how these little laboratories of democracy thing works. But until then, I think they, they sort of need to have some kind of a statement if they want to do this, because the background under 21 U.S.C. 841 is that, you know, this can be a felony. So let me you, you of all people would know the answer to this question. It's a felony and nobody cares in the intelligence community. So when you do a polygraph. You admit to your marijuana use, because you should, and then you're admitting to a federal felony. And my memory is that every federal felony that was admitted to in a polygraph got sent to the National Security Division to decide whether to prosecute or not, or maybe I, went to the criminal division. Yeah, you know, I mean, I do think, first of all, I will give advice to young people, don't lie uh, in your background investigation, because what typically happens if you do admit, and you, you may end up admitting before the poly, because you're going to be admitting on your SF-86 or as part of the paper process to the background check. And what I do think as a practical matter does happen is your personnel file just goes away and they don't pursue it. And there isn't much history that I know of of anybody getting prosecuted for a run-of-the-mill felony like that, if you literally admitted no, that you not. shot John F. Kennedy or it's something. Just, I, I wondered know. whether it's, it's a giant yeah. paperwork burden on the it, Justice I, Department. My sense is that the, and I don't know the exact current practice, I have to confess it's been a long time, but those cases, whether they, whether they technically trigger a referral, uh, you know, they do not trigger a lot of paperwork because nobody wants to do that because it's bad incentives. They want you to tell the truth and you should tell the truth in these background investigations and then fight on the merits as to whether it's disqualifying or not. 
Okay. All right. Practical advice for people hoping to join the intelligence community. <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> not right. David, thank you. Jamil, Gus, this was a terrific discussion for the audience. If you've got comments, send them to cyberlawpodcasts at steptoe.com or, you know, give us a review. That's fine, too. And if it's entertaining, we'll read it on the air. And if it's entertainingly abusive, I'll definitely read it on the air. And thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 414 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.